0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Pastek. The Greek poet Sappho's reputation looks something like a parabola. At the height of her powers, her lyrics were so beloved that grammarians quoted them as exemplars of the Greek language, and Plato called her the Tenth Muse. Then, after a thousand years of exaltation, she tumbled from the pantheon, Today, we know very little of her life, and precious few of her works remain—most of them recovered from ancient garbage heaps in the 19th century. The surviving 306 fragments of her verse—dozens of them but a single word or phrase—are compiled in a new and updated translation by classicist Diane J. Rayer, simply titled Sappho, out this month from Cambridge University Press. What we know of the poet's life is sparser than the lines she left us. She was born on the Isle of Lesbos around 600 BCE, sang her poems with accompaniment from the lyre and sometimes a chorus, and had three brothers and a daughter named Kleos, which was probably her mother's name too, although that's not certain. The name of her husband, handed down to us in a Byzantine encyclopedia entry, is probably an archaic dick joke. It means little prick from the Isle of Man. Everything else, we can just glean from her poetry. Diane Rayer, Professor Emerita of Classics at Grand Valley State University, joins us today to do just that, to discuss the difficulties and joys of rediscovering Sappho and translating her into English. Thanks so much for talking to me, Diane. Thank you so much for having me on. Diane, you have been in a relationship, one could say, with Sappho for more than 40 years. Why did you first fall in love with her poetry and How has your relationship changed since you first translated fragment number two in college?
1: Oh, my. Well,
0: I fell in love with Sappho
1: just reading a few of her poems. The Greek is so beautiful. The sound of it, the way it looks even. I think also it was because when learning Greek and studying ancient Greece, so much of it is men, or men writing about women. And to have the earliest woman's voice that we have from ancient Greece, that just really grabbed me. Also that her work sounds so modern. It just touched me, and I know that's what my students have said too, is that it just... It sounds like it's now. It feels like it's now. So my relationship in some ways has stayed the same in that Sappho is so beautiful. And it does, it still grabs me from the inside. What's changed is I've gotten better at translating her and more of her has been discovered.
0: I think one of the more frustrating things for me about reading Sappho and reading about Sappho is just how much of her work has been lost. Yes. Uh, There's one Greek author who said it was three centuries after her death. And he said that, quote, the white columns of Sappho's lovely song endure and will endure speaking out loud as long as ships sail from the Nile. But now we have like one complete poem and then a bunch of stanzas and then other fragments. And some of those fragments are just like three words on three separate lines. How did that happen? You know, how do we go from like the library of Alexandria being stuffed with her work? Yes. To now like celebrating when we find two words from a poem that is probably hers.
1: Yes. So... In the Library of Alexandria, there, there were nine scrolls of her poetry. And so about 10,000 lines. We have maybe about 700 now. Uh, so we only have a very small percentage. And that's kind of heartbreaking. But we know she was extremely popular in her own time which meant that she would have performed and then people would have performed cover songs of Sappho, right? So concerts, oh yeah, sing me a Sappho, right? Um, and that her work was copied over and over again for a long time. But at a certain point when monks in monasteries are the ones who are copying down ancient work. It seems like monks lost interest or weren't interested. uh, And so some of it was lost that way. Uh, Later, a pope, church fathers purposely had it burned. So there was some purposeful losing and destruction. And by the Middle Ages, uh, most of it was lost. And yet her name continued and stories of her continued. And then about 1900, 1904, somewhere around there, we started to find Sappho again. So some of our sources are ancient papyri, that was discovered, one of the big groups was at Oxyrhynchus, which is in Egypt where it's dry enough that uh, papyrus could survive. And uh, Oxyrhynchus, where where the papyri were found was a garbage dump. And so you use papyrus over and over again because it's precious, right? So let's say Sappho was copied once on it, and uh, then maybe the back was used for something else, and uh, it gets worn and torn, and then maybe it's um, used for some extra mummy wrappings, uh, you know, and then which is followed by linen wrappings. And so sometimes we find it in mummies right? Or in, in um, pieces folded that were shoved in some of the early books to help stiffen up the spying. But a lot was found just in the garbage dump. Now, some of these scrolls are so dirty, right? that And so fragile that they couldn't be read. And so they were stored in museums and university archives. And so one of the amazing things that's happening is that we're getting new technologies that make it possible to read through scrolls without unrolling them, and through dirt. And so that's why some new things are coming up now. They were already found but they're just being, we're just having the technology to read them. So we also have little bits and pieces from grammarians who were saying, this is how in the lesbian dialect you say this word. And so they would give us a word or a line maybe. Uh, And so some of the fragments are single words, as you mentioned, Um, but some of them, like there's dialect treatises, handbooks on meters, grammar ones. So all these little ones that just took little bits and pieces as an example. And so we have it from that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the reasons why we're talking today is because there's a new edition of the the new translation that you did from 2015 which included um new fragments that were found in 2014 some of which were substantial um, yes including this the poem that sort of solidifies our suspicions that Sappho had brothers and cared about them enough to write poems about them Um, But there's also fragments um, that have been discovered since then that are now included in this edition that are just like three words or two words. What's the point of including something like that? What's the point of, you know, connecting it to Sappho?
1: Okay, so of the 32 new fragments that are in my second edition, uh, 16 of them were on old papyrus and in, they weren't in the editions that I was using before, or I figured uh, you can hardly read this, it's a part of a word, and so I skipped it. 11 of them are ones that are uncertain whether they're Sappho or her contemporary male poet Alcaeus, and so they were listed as Sappho or Alcaeus, and so I kind of skipped those. But now, I included a few of them in the first edition, but what happened is that there's a new Greek edition out, published in 2021, and so everything... That Neri, the editor of this new Greek edition, considered a whole enough word. I translate it, and so, so it's not all new findings. It's a new edition of the Greek, and me more carefully looking, like. A poem that mentions spinning is not going to be her male contemporary Alcius, who mostly talks about drinking and politics. Now, Sappho also talks about politics. But if it has to do with spinning, it's going to be Sappho. But back to your question about why include even the little bitsies parts, the parts that are, you know, single words or... You know, sometimes there's like 18 lines with just one word that survives. My reasoning for it is that this is what we have now. I don't know what new parts are going to be found next, that maybe this part will just slot into the new findings. That's what happened with the 2004 one. So we don't know what else is going to be found. But also, there's a haunting beauty in these fragments. I'm hoping that people hear those little bitty parts and kind of piece them together in their minds. Or who knows what other poets are going to use these fragments for, like H.D. did, right? She used all sorts of different pieces. And modern poets are doing that all the time. So I guess I'm just trying to be
0: very complete, which is silly to say about fragments. (laughs) Well, not everything is in tatters. Maybe you could read for us one of the more complete poems that we have and one of the more famous since Catullus translated it, fragment number 31. I would
1: be happy to. To me, it seems that man has the fortune of gods Whoever sits beside you and close, who listens to you sweetly speaking and laughing temptingly. My heart flutters in my breast. Whenever I quickly glance at you, I can say nothing. My tongue is broken. A delicate fire runs under my skin. My eyes see nothing. My ears roar. Cold sweat rushes down me. Trembling seizes me. I am greener than grass. To myself, I seem needing but little to die. Yet, all can be dared since. And that's where
0: it cuts off. Who knows where it goes? Now, for contrast, I want to play a clip from a recreation, a reimagining of what Sappho might have sounded like for Greek listeners in antiquity. Because, as you said, all these poems were performed in public at various events or venues. So, this one comes to us from a contemporary Greek group called Podium Arts. That was fragment one, a lyric to Aphrodite, but the fragment that you read would have been performed publicly, too. That one and most of Sappho's work feels so deeply personal, so intimate, and, and some of her poems were intimate in another sense, in an erotic sense. Can you talk about the tension between that personal quality and the public performance of a poem like fragment 31? Yes, and
1: that really gets to just this marvelous quality. So it sounds like a diary, like a letter. It's so personal, right? And yet all of it was meant to be performed. Some of her poems were choral. uh, Some of them were solo. It's hard to tell which is which. This mm-hmm. one certainly seems like it would have been a solo performance. And I'm picturing a group of women and uh you know, and again, all these women know her. So in that way, it is intimate. This is a group of women that know each other, love each other in whatever relationships are there. And so everyone is kind of hearing their own life version of it. I read it as really a women-centered, women-focused eroticism. Mm -hmm. It's, talking about female desire for other women. And the poems I think are quite clear about that. We have examples from other poets, for example, a Spartan poet, Alcman, who does have choruses of women who are specifically singing about how hot other women are for an audience of Spartan men where it's very clear that the agenda is, look at how hot these women are, and these are the women you really should be marrying.
0: That gives rise to another question I have, because Sappho is a lot more famous than Alkmen and more beloved, both in her own time and ours. So how do we square that with what we know of Greek society, which is not known for its stellar treatment of women? <laughs> Yes, that is interesting.
1: What it seems to be in about 600 BCE on the island of Lesbos, at least aristocratic women had more freedom to be hanging out together and singing these songs to each other. And there were a lot of political strife going on at the same time, and it seems like the Aristocratic men were very occupied by that. Uh, but that's also why I said that everyone would have been married. Sappho would have been married. And she would have, she, we know she performed wedding songs. And that would have been before a mixed crowd. And she performed cultic hymns to gods. That would have been very public. So many of her poems would have been performed by choruses in front of a a mixed audience. It seems like this time period is very different on the island of Lesbos than, for example, in Athens, Mm -hmm. where this just wouldn't fly,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Mm
1: -hmm. So we can't just say Greece. We have to think, well, 5th century Sparta... uh, women having relationships with women seems to have been very much accepted and kind of assumed just like men's relationship with other men was. Um, it's totally not mentioned in Athens at the same time in 5th century. Now, what we don't know is we know what the poems say. We don't know what Sappho herself was doing. Mm. And I really see that as, as different. The poems are erotic and they're toward other women, at least the ones that are addressed that way, not the wedding poems, right? Wedding songs. But who Sappho was having sex with, just to be very blunt, no idea.
0: Well, let's go a little deeper into the poetry, especially because I'm interested in these questions of translation, of all the decisions that go into reshaping a poem, and in your case, sometimes even reconstructing one. And I think one of the more interesting discussions might be of fragment 130, which you've revised quite significantly more than once. So maybe you can read it, it's only three lines, so maybe you can read it in the Greek um, first, and then talk about the changes you made and why this poem inspired so much contemplation, even though it's like maybe a dozen words. Less,
1: and it's only two lines in the Greek. Eros teutemolusimele stone, glucupicron, amaknon, orpiton. That's it. Now, this poem to me is just so exciting because it starts off with eros, passion, love, desire. And then the very next word is once again. And then there's a little M for me followed by the limb loosener seizes or shakes so the verb at the end the little tiny me is trapped in between it and being squeezed and so to me this is just so amazing that physically the poem does what it's talking about uh now limb loosener is only used like after sex or being killed. Okay. Or you know, so it's a really strong word for the loosening of limbs. The second line is glucopicrone, sweet, bitter. Amakanone, this also is impossible to translate because it means no machinery to deal with it. There's no technology there's no resources. It's without a cure. And then the very last word is orpatone in Sappho's dialect, which is where we get herpatone, herpetology, reptiles. So this is totally not a hallmark version of love, right? And so trying to find English words that would match this just... I tried it so many, so many different ways. In my first edition, I did it, once again, love, that loosener of limbs, bittersweet and inescapable crawling thing seizes me. And so I had put the verb at the very end of it all. In the second edition, I made it three lines, but I, squeezed the verb in between the top and the bottom lines, but I put it where it is in the Greek. So I made it more like the Greek. So once again, love, that loosener of limbs seizes me. Sweet, bitter, inescapable, crawling thing. And so the other choice I made was instead of doing bittersweet, which is common to our ears, and Sappho was the very first one that we know of who made that compound, I put it in the Greek order to have that sweetness come first. In a way, this is how I translate. I'm trying to get the English to move toward the Greek, and the Greek has to move to the English because if it doesn't work in English, it just plain doesn't work. And so you don't have a poem anymore. So it's this delicate balancing act of choices.
0: Mm, yeah, I think the second version works much better. Yes. Especially with the enjambment of Seizes Me Being Stuck in the Middle, but also Sweet Bitter. I didn't know that Sappho had originated Bittersweet. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder how many other of our ideas about love or language she originated that we, that we know about, but also that we don't know about that sort of like have seeped into the culture in fragments that are still buried in a trash mound somewhere. And
1: that's a good argument for translating even every word. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, in one little bit that I translated for this edition, the only two words you see are Sappho and Mistress, But since there's very few uses of Sappho using her own name, it just feels very precious. And also the word that she uses for mistress then is in some other poems. And so you can just see all these connections growing too. We look at what's there. We look at Sappho's work that survives and then the translator makes the decision.
0: Have there been some decisions that you've regretted or, I guess, some moral choices that have come up for you in translating Sappho?
1: Yes. Oh, gosh, so many. In poem 31 that I read aloud, the very last line that we only have the fragment of, I had before, yet all can be endured, And I changed it in this one to dared. Now think about the difference. Endured means, well, we have to put up with this. We're suffering with love, but what can we do? Right? Dared means you go, girl. Right? It's the same word in Greek. Tolmaton can mean dare, brave, endure. There's all sorts of choices there.
0: Your point about translating what we have because we don't know what will be discovered next is really borne out by one poem in particular that I want to close our discussion with, 58, known as the Tythonus poem or the old age poem, which was formerly a fragment and then mostly completed in 2004. And I think this is an especially lovely poem to talk about with you, Diane, because you began translating Sappho as a young woman, And now as an older woman, suddenly here's this poem that it turns out celebrates aging rather than mourning it as we thought, you know, 40 years ago before we found this other half. Could you read 58 for us?
1: Reveal the beautiful gifts of the violet-robed muses, girls, dancing to the song-loving voice of the sweet-toned lyres. My skin was delicate before, But now old age claims it. My hair turned from black to white. My spirit has grown heavy. Knees buckle that once would dance light as fawns. I often groan, but what can I do? It's impossible for humans not to age. For they say, pierced by love, rosy-armed dawn went to the ends of earth holding Tithonus, beautiful and young, But in time, gray old age seized him, even with a deathless wife. Believes may give, yet I love the finer things. Know that passion for the light of life has also granted me brilliance and beauty.
0: So how has our understanding of this poem shifted?
1: Wow, this one was one of those oxyrhynchus papyri from the garbage dump. And it was uh, sliced at a slant, torn at a slant. And so we didn't have that much of it. And then in 2004, another papyrus was found that slotted together perfectly. And so it completed the first 12 lines. So the second papyrus that was found had it only as a 12-line poem. But the oxyrhynchus papyrus has two little words that are fragmented and then two complete lines. And so some people think that the poem ended with deathless wife. But oh no, I don't think so. Because those two fit together and make a much more sapphic sense. Because sappho doesn't tend to end with the myth And this one has the myth of the goddess Dawn falling in love with the human man Tithonus. And he's granted everlasting life, but not everlasting youth. And so he continually grows old. Not a good thing. I don't think Sappho would have ended it this way. And the other papyrus that we have doesn't. Sappho ends it with... Even though I'm physically growing old, she says, passion for the light of life has granted me brilliance and beauty. So a life well lived with passion, knowing the finer things. This leads to that brilliance and a kind of beauty. Now, the word beautiful is used three different times for the beautiful gifts that the muses give, for the beautiful young Tithonus, and for this brilliant beauty. So it's the same word. So it's the same kind of beauty. It's just, it moves from physical to hopefully a more enduring kind of beauty.
0: There's a link in the show notes to Diane J. Rayer's Sappho, a new translation of the complete works, as well as Cambridge University Press's free collection of all these fragments read aloud by Kate Reading. There's also some writing about the controversy surrounding the provenance of some of these papyri, which were sometimes acquired by criminal means. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.